From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. Let me tell you a love story. Bill Faber moved to Wilmington to get a new start. He came here with his fiancée, Melanie Hornung, with the goal of saving up money to buy a boat and adventure together. They found a little apartment right off Military Cutoff Road, and Melanie got a job at the Michaels nearby to pay for rent. Bill was in an online bachelor's program for cybersecurity at Western Governors University and figured he'd get away from a crowd back home that had led him into some unhealthy habits, smoking cigarettes and drinking. The couple had been in Wilmington since last July, and in the fall they quit smoking. They made a YouTube video about how they developed new habits to help them keep off cigarettes. And going for a walk is pretty easy, you know, especially for people that have just recently quit. They're probably going to have some trouble getting that oxygen for doing some more heavy hardcore exercising like hiking and, and whatnot. But, but yeah, if you, you know, just going on a walk, it, it, it really helps. It helped Bill tamp down his anxiety, which got worse since he quit. And he loved to walk from a young age, according to his brother, Rob Faber. One thing that, that he really liked to do was walk. He, lo- he, was a, he was an avid, you know, kind of walker. He would go out and just kind of roam around, and especially at night, because he, he always had trouble sleeping at night. He was kind of a night owl. One night, less than a week after Bill and Melanie posted their YouTube guide on how to quit smoking, he died. So he was wanting to, like, you know, come lay down with me because I had to work the next morning. Um, wanted to come lay down with me and try to go to sleep. Um, but it was like one of those, like, I can't sleep. I have too much energy um, and full of anxiety. Um and it's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know. I'm like, and so I'm like, you know, take, you know, take your phone, take a flashlight, you know, go for a walk. Bill did. He left the apartment that night and he didn't come back. Melanie woke up to the police at her door asking what he'd been wearing when he left. On December 5th, 2021, he was crossing Military Cutoff Road right next to the library. He was hit by a Toyota Tacoma and he died on the scene. Melanie says Bill was trying to get his life on track. They'd met seven years before when they were down on their luck and immediately were drawn to each other. He, he knew how to make people laugh. He knew how to fix things. He knew he wore many hats. You know, when, when he and I started dating and, um, you know, being um, like healthy and wanting to like build the other person up, like encourage the other person to be a better person than they were yesterday, you know, and being healthy about it. Um, we had quit smoking uh, many times um, and you know, wanting to you know, save money and do something with our lives. Where Bill died, there's no crosswalk. The pedestrian path by Military Cutoff Road ends, and then there's no sidewalk. We can't ask Bill why he was in the street, but I have a suspicion. Eastwood Road has the Cross City walking trail less than half a mile up the road. Maybe he was crossing to get to a sidewalk over there to make a loop. We don't know. We just know Bill died right where the sidewalk ends. Using healthy substitutes, which kind of goes in with walking. Again, the, the more walks, the better. Every time that you start feeling that anxiety coming on. But life is not just about individual choices. The systems we live inside of can determine the likelihood that a tragedy befalls us. And for those of us living on these deadly streets, death is just a step or a pedal away. Melanie feels that Bill would have stood a better chance if he'd been walking back home in Washington State instead of in Wilmington. There's a, in Bellingham, where we spent most of our life, um, on Alabama Street, there's one of those, and it flashes, like you push the button, and it flashes above, and it flashes over here. 
to let drivers know that, hey, there's somebody crossing the street. Um, and there are lots of roads that have sidewalks. And in Wilmington, I've noticed that there's hardly any sidewalks at all, especially in that area. In New Hanover County, 16 people on foot or on a bike died in car crashes between 2018 and 2021. Bill is just one of them. 23 people in that time frame were disabled by crashes, and hundreds more have been injured just in those few years. And so far in 2022, four people on foot have died because of car crashes. I'll be honest, this issue is a bit personal to me as someone who navigates the world on a bicycle every day. I wear a helmet, I use a bike light, and I try to pick roads that are relatively safe. But whenever I see a big truck at an intersection, especially one with tinted windows, I have a spike of fear. Has the driver even seen me? Or are they looking at a text and haven't noticed my existence? Whenever a cyclist or a pedestrian is killed, it seems like the victim is blamed for what happened to them, either in the police report or in the media reports. Pedestrian was crossing the roadway in a low light area. Pedestrian was wearing dark clothing. Pedestrian was not in a crosswalk. These are all phrases pulled directly from police reports about these deaths. Charges are rarely filed unless the driver was drunk or committed a hit and run. And yes, it's certainly the case that stepping into a poorly lit road, especially in dark clothing, is dangerous. But what is rarely discussed is why people do that. That's beyond the typical scope of a police report. They never write, pedestrian was jaywalking because there is no crosswalk within half a mile of this spot. And most reporters, myself included much of the time, don't make the effort to go and take a look for ourselves. For Bill, he chose to go for a walk. And when the sidewalk ended abruptly in front of the library, he crossed the street. His brother, Rob, says he was trying to walk more, to deal with insomnia, and to deal with the stress of his recent lifestyle changes. He was actually saying that he, he's been out walking a lot more because of, you know, because he needs to get out and do something when he's, uh, you know, going through that, both quitting smoking and drinking at the same time. And Rob misses him, even if the reality of his sudden death hasn't really hit him yet. He would always connect more with the oddballs, connect more with the, with the outsiders and the people that were also out of sync, you know, so he, he had a, a big heart for those kind of people. Regional governments encourage residents to walk and bike in the name of public health. The Cape Fear Regional Bicycle Plan, finalized in 2017, points out that an estimated 10.8% of all deaths in the United States can be attributed to physical inactivity, and that every dollar spent on biking trails and walking paths saves $3 in medical costs. So Bill goes for a walk to stay healthy. I make that kind of choice all the time. I bike every day to get to work or to the grocery store or the park. I do it for exercise, to reduce my carbon footprint, and because I like how it feels to be a part of the world I'm navigating. You feel the wind or the rain, hear music coming out of a nearby bar, wave to your neighbors. And look, I understand that a lot of people have to drive. If you live in Leland and work in Wilmington, you legally can't cross the bridge in anything but a motorized vehicle. We live in a car-based society, and I don't fault anyone for choosing the mode of transportation that has been heavily subsidized and emphasized by the government and that's safer. Tab Combs, a researcher at UNC Chapel Hill, points out that the quality of bike and pedestrian infrastructure is closely correlated with the adoption of these modes. People are driving or they're choosing, they're choosing other routes or other modes. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that bike around campus, but I think there are a lot of people who are really, or around town, I think there are a lot of people that are just really afraid to do it. Um, and if the infrastructure were better, were more protected, um, we would have much higher numbers. 
Although Wilmington and the state of North Carolina both encourage cycling and walking instead of driving, the infrastructure doesn't necessarily support it. Carol Stein serves on a bike and pedestrian committee for the Wilmington Metropolitan Planning Organization and says Wilmington's infrastructure can be tough for cyclists. It's not safe for beginners. The roads are, are not safe for our average cyclist. Um, we do have some bright spots, the Gary Shell Cross City Trail, Park Avenue, um, and Currently, we are working on a number of bike paths in Wilmington, but the hurdle that we have is funding for all of these. How safe I am while on a bike in Wilmington depends entirely on where I am. Most of the streets Stein points to as bright spots are quite safe and don't have a lot of crashes. People are a lot less likely to step or bike into traffic if they've got a nice alternative. It's a whole different story for roads like Carr, College, and Carolina Beach Road. And cyclists and pedestrians need to cross these roads all the time if they're walking or biking for their regular transportation. That's what we figured out from an analysis of bike and pedestrian-involved crashes in New Hanover County. We, being myself and WECT's investigative reporter, Michael Pratz, who joins me in the studio now. So, Michael, thank you for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So to start out, let's uh, just explain a little bit about this data. I got it from NCDOT, and it's all of the bike and pedestrian-involved crashes from New Hanover County from 2018 to 2021. So that's three years. And I asked you to do this map analysis for me. So just to start out, which streets turn out to have the most pedestrian and cyclist-involved crashes? Yeah, sure. So it might seem like common sense here. Uh, You're going to see more accidents, more collisions, I won't necessarily even call them accidents, but incidences on the busier roads, the busier corridors. So Market Street for sure. And that runs all the way from the top of the county, uh, all the way dead ends at the riverfront. So popular stretch of uh, stretch of road here, that definitely sees the highest um, number of accidents with a, a major percentage there. And if I remember correctly, it accounts for like 10% of overall crashes in the county, but it's 30-something percent of deadly crashes. Yeah, exactly. And there could be a lot of contributing factors here that I think we can get into a little bit later. But let's, uh, as far as other uh, roads that kind of stood out to me just looking at this data, uh, you do have a high number on 3rd Street, which is, again, a very heavily traveled corridor. Uh, And then, of course... College Road, uh, it is by and large. I mean, you go down college any time of day, for the most part, you're going to be sitting in heavy traffic. It is by the college. And we've seen over the past few years, I've personally seen people running across college, which is very unsafe to do. Uh, and the data just proves that we've seen people at like 2, 3 in the morning trying to get over to cookout, pitch black, Possibly, you know, college kids possibly just trying to get some food late night, early morning, um, and unfortunately leads to some very severe collisions and even fatalities here. So the busier the roads, the more incidents we are seeing. Yeah, I actually want to explain a little bit about that because these streets, the top five streets, are all what some designers call strodes, and it's a portmanteau of street and road. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's a street is a place where pedestrians are walking, there are some cars, but the idea is it's where life is lived in a city. And then a road is a place where people try to go really quickly from lo- one location to another. It's mostly about moving traffic. Mm-hmm. A strode is a place where those two ideas are combined, and that means that there's a lot of pedestrians who are trying to go into businesses or walk around, 
right where there's a lot of very fast traffic and it leads to some severe outcomes. And Market is kind of the perfect example of that because it's an extremely busy stretch of road. There's tons of businesses, tons of in and outs, but it's also a place where people are going 45, even 50 miles an hour if you're closer towards the beach. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that plays a major role. And the design with Market Street that uh, is the bane of most drivers' existence. If you, I mean, even when I had my motorcycle, it was uh, you kind of hold your breath going through that uh, Burnt Mill Creek area. Uh, where the road really comes in narrow. It's obviously the older part of Market Street, and you know you gotta you gotta suck in and make sure you're not gonna hit the car next to you or run into that curb and uh, cause some incidents there. So uh, that is also a a concern area for a lot of people, and I think the data will uh, re- reveal that those that area of the narrower stretch uh, definitely leads to more intense driving conditions, um, which can also lead to more uh, collisions. Yeah. Uh, I actually went to a couple of the places where pedestrians and cyclists died along Market Street and a couple other roads. And the thing that stood out to me is that these are locations without crosswalks and where there are not crosswalks nearby. So I think that the point you made about college with kids running across where it's dark, when there's no lighting, when there's nowhere for somebody to safely cross, they're going to cross there anyway, Mm because who's going to walk half a mile out of the way to get to the nearest crosswalk if they're drunk at two in the morning trying to go to cookout, right? Right, right. (laughs) Um, So yeah, very interesting to think about the design and how that can lead to some of these issues. Yeah. And, you know, it's also worth noting on on the flip side of things, installing Hawk traffic lights. The DOT obviously does work with uh, transportation is not just motor vehicles. It's not just trucks and cars. Uh, It is pedestrians. It is bicycles. But at, at the same time, you do have to consider the amount of vehicle traffic on the road and whether or not it's appropriate to have crosswalks where you're going to block up even more traffic. I think the level of service on College Road, uh, which is how DOT determines how the volume of these roads, I'm, I, I don't know off the top of my head, I cannot imagine the level of service is getting an A-plus rating right now. Um, so adding more traffic lights and uh, those hawk signals could be, you know, very, it, it could back up that level of service even further and traffic is one of the biggest concerns we hear from people in the community so it's uh you definitely have to balance the the needs versus public safety versus traffic concerns here um so you know that is something to take into account there are definitely solutions that can avoid that whole question as well i mean i was in eugene for college and there were all kinds of tunnels going Mm -hmm. under some of these major streets so pedestrians and cyclists never even came in contact with traffic. And I think that that's always considered the highest level, best possible option, but it's also the most expensive. Yeah, definitely. And I don't, um, at my college as well, we had a very busy street that abutted our college and we had a a little skywalk people mover bridge um, and you couldn't even go and cross the road there. It had a fence. So, I mean, I guess you could if you climbed a fence, Uh, but much easier just to take the steps and go across. You never interact with the traffic. Uh, it's a, you know, a very commonly seen solution around colleges, especially in my experience that I've seen. It's got to be cheaper than the cost of human lives. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into more of that in our reporting. But thank you for coming in today. And if you're interested in seeing those maps, you can find them at WECT.com or WHQR.org. Perfect. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Yep.
So certain streets in the Wilmington area are particularly deadly and dangerous. Members of the regional planning organization say they're ready to fix these problems and make Wilmington safer, so long as they get enough funding. So what would a safe community look like for cyclists and pedestrians? When we come back from this break, we'll dig into that question and see what bike and pedestrian safety looks like in other towns in North Carolina that invest in it. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm your cyclist tour guide, Kelly Knoyer, and we're talking about bike and pedestrian infrastructure today. I'm new to North Carolina, so I didn't realize it until now. Chapel Hill is a cool town. So many breweries and restaurants and nice little parks and nooks. And as a cyclist, the infrastructure is often a joy to ride on. Maybe that has to do with the city's university and the fact that UNC Chapel Hill is home to the state's biggest city planning department, including major transportation planning bona fides. These folks live and breathe city design, and a lot of them are cyclists or used to be. Um, and for me personally, you know, I've, I've gotten older, I have a family now, I have a kid, and so I am a lot more conscious of the hazards on the road. Um, and so I don't feel nearly as safe now riding around as I did 15 years ago. Tab Combs is a researcher and lecturer with UNC Chapel Hill's planning department. She hosted an event one weekend in April called Flipping the Script on Traffic Violence. To, to help us talk about messaging and think about how what we see and what we experience can help us shape communication um, with, with other people, with, with elected leaders, with decision makers, with, with planners and engineers, neighbors and family, to just make it easier um, and more effective talking about the problem of, of traffic violence on our roads for people who are walking and biking. This event was chock full of transportation nerds, my kind of people. And that term Combs used, traffic violence, that's an intentional one. There's a tendency to call car crashes traffic accidents. But those outcomes are a result of design, Combs says, so they're not really an accident. Here's Jennifer Paltrow-Silliman, the communications manager for the UNC Highway Safety Research Center. A safe roadway system is a, is a roadway system that is designed in such a way that even if somebody crashes or otherwise gets hurt, it's, um, it's not likely to be a fatal crash or a very serious crash. So what does that look like? Well, sometimes it looks like a roundabout. A roundabout is, 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 is always used as an example of a safe system kind of thing because it is the way that it works, slowing down people and controlling the, controlling the way the traffic flows. It's very hard to have a very serious crash, even if there is a crash. It's very hard for it to have a serious crash. In some European countries, they've developed high-quality intersections that protect cyclists with raised curbs regardless of where they're turning and signals just for cyclists. Cars drive slowly because of all the curbs, and these safe intersections mean all kinds of people use bikes to get around. Office workers, parents, children, older people, everyone. There are tons of facilities like that that can improve safety for cyclists and pedestrians. But a lot of those high-end ones are uncommon in the United States. Something you've probably seen? The lowest-ranking bike infrastructure, the Shero. Those little painted arrows depicting a cyclist that are slapped onto some neighborhood streets. Unless it's a very slow and safe neighborhood street, that facility does nothing. Traditional bike lanes that sit at the road shoulder are similar. Particularly on high-speed roads, they're genuinely dangerous. There's a bike lane like that on Randall Parkway, and the day after I wrote this script, May 23rd, 
a cyclist was hospitalized after a car turned into him in that bike lane. The safest facilities for pedestrians and cyclists are separated paved paths, called greenways. They're also the most comfortable. Here in Wilmington, you can think of the Gary Shell Cross City Trail. But in Chapel Hill, they're even better. You can hear all the bird calls, there's no traffic sound. A lot of the trails in Chapel Hill follow creeks or have replaced defunct rail lines. That means these greenway trails are often in forested areas, far away from high-speed cars and the noise that comes with them. Joggers and cyclists share these paths with groups of chatting college students or little kids biking to school, and they're nice and cool thanks to the shade of the trees. While the greenways available are a delight, Chapel Hill isn't without its problems. Statistically, the town had 126 bike and pedestrian-involved crashes from 2018 to 2021, less than half Wilmington's amount. Corrected for population, it's a bit closer. Wilmington's 248 crashes per capita is a bit higher than Chapel Hill's 203 per capita. But their crashes tend to be far less deadly. Adjusted per capita, Chapel Hill has half the bike and ped death rate that Wilmington does. But to show us an example of dangerously designed roads, Tap Combs took her tour to the intersection of Laurel Avenue, Weaver Street, and West Main Street in Carborough. Basically, you've got this multi-lane road going this way. You've got um, a two-lane road with a center turn lane coming this way. You've got another road shooting off right there. You've got a weird little triangle right there that nobody knows what to do with. Um, the stop bar coming this way is in a really awkward location. The whole thing is just... It's, it's, a, it's a disaster waiting to happen. She's right. It's a mess. You can't even see the traffic light change from the bike lane, so you really can't tell when it's safe to go, other than by watching when the cars are going. But she says it's an easy thing to fix. Just to turn that painted triangle into, into an island, into an actual hardscape concrete island. Those kinds of concrete barriers are a refuge for cyclists and pedestrians. Medians down the center of a road are another example. If the median is just painted on, there's nothing that can protect a pedestrian crossing the street from a careless driver. But if there's a raised median with curbs, the pedestrian can stop halfway across the street and wait in a safe location for the traffic to pass by before moving on. Those are quite protective, with or without a crosswalk. Of which, by the way, there are very few across major thoroughfares in Wilmington. Carol Stein, who serves on the Bike Ped Advisory Committee for the Wilmington Metropolitan Planning Organization, says there simply aren't enough places with crosswalks, especially protected ones, in Wilmington. Do we have enough funding to um, improve the crosswalk intersections? On College Road, probably a number of those are students trying to get to class, but they're not going to walk a whole block to get to the crosswalk. So there might be crosswalks on College but not where the traffic of pedestrians are, which makes it difficult. That funding problem is serious. NCDOT is chronically underfunded, and its spending on bike and ped infrastructure is paltry. It's often just left to local jurisdictions to fund these projects, and still, it remains limited. That can change under certain circumstances. NCDOT has a specific pot of money available for so-called safety projects, where crash data shows that specific interventions could save lives. There's one such project underway on 3rd and Dock in Wilmington right now. Here's Mike Kozlowski, the executive director of WMPO. The residents of Old Wilmington have been pushing for um, enhanced crosswalks and improvements along South 3rd Street. They've also uh, made a request for a reduction in speed limit uh, and also some additional uh, speed monitoring devices out there. It'll also come with a raised median, creating a refuge for tourists crossing the street to view the historic buildings downtown. 
Multiple surveys in Wilmington show that the majority of residents think biking or walking is currently dangerous, and the majority want that to change so they can bike and walk more. The addition of more bikeways, crosswalks, and sidewalks was the number one priority listed in every survey. Most everyone knows someone who's been in a wreck or has been in a wreck themselves, and so I think, you know, there's just a normalization to it. That's Elise Keefe, who works for the UNC Injury Prevention Research Center. She says the rate of crashes that cause injuries and deaths in the U.S. and Canada is off the charts higher than in other countries. For too long we've been planning our, our roads and transportation system and built environment, um, fully expecting that uh, fatal crashes and serious injuries are going to happen and, and just kind of being accepting of those. Um, and I, I have to say, actually, where we're walking to right now is a fabulous example um, in my own personal experience because when I was um, a senior at UNC years back, uh, actually two of my friends were walking on this sidewalk where we're headed right now, and they were um, both struck by a drunk driver and seriously injured. They were both hospitalized, um, and I think still have some chronic health issues as a result of that crash. She says that crash didn't change anything about the street for years and years until the city recently put in a signaled crosswalk. Keefe wants cities to spend more time looking at their own crash data to see where interventions are necessary and to put funding into them quickly to save lives. Some communities in the U.S. are trying to change the perspective on traffic deaths from an inevitability to a preventable tragedy, which should never happen again. The pledge is called Vision Zero. It's a zero-tolerance approach to traffic violence, where cities make a pledge to reduce traffic deaths to zero by a specific year. In North Carolina, Chapel Hill has taken the pledge and vows to end traffic deaths by 2031. But Wilmington hasn't joined. Yet. Wilmington more recently has gotten involved with, with us and has expressed interest in joining this Vision Zero collaborative we have across the state. There's now about 11 communities that are with us. That's Seth Laginus, another UNC Chapel Hill researcher with the Highway Safety Research Center. He says the public needs to buy into the idea of Vision Zero to sway politicians into making the effort. And it's kind of a matter of culture. Do Americans or North Carolinians or Wilmingtonians believe it's possible to end traffic deaths? Because it is possible. Fremont, California is one success story. Their rate of traffic deaths is 2.1 per 100,000 residents annually, a fifth the rate of the rest of the United States. They reduced their rate by 25% just a year after instituting Vision Zero. And they basically did it by moving their existing transit funding towards pedestrian-friendly infrastructure. And even in cities that generally feel safer to bike in than Wilmington, there are scary sections. Biking back to my car at the park in Carborough, I ended up at an intersection where the greenway stopped abruptly with no crossing at a road where cars were going 45 miles per hour. About 100 feet down the road on the other side, the path starts again. But there's no marked crossing and little warning for drivers that cyclists and pedestrians will be there. Places like Cary, North Carolina, do even better than Chapel Hill does. That's a town with just 60 crashes per capita to Wilmington's 248. Maybe that's because of the emphasis they put on pedestrians and cyclists. Cary has more than 79 miles of greenway, with another 145 miles planned. These greenways are beautiful, separated trails for bikes and pedestrians that cut through the forested sections of the city. And that town, which is only slightly larger than Wilmington, has more greenway trails than Wilmington has simple sidewalks. 
I'll say that again. The town of Cary has more miles of greenway than Wilmington has miles of sidewalks. Todd Millam is the facilities planner for Cary, and he says the town has a simple solution to the problem I ran into on Chapel Hill's trails, where I ran into a fast-moving road with no clear way forward. So what we have is kind of a, um, it's called a street side trail, and it kind of connects those greenway corridors between those riparian areas. So they'll, they'll run adjacent to some of our primary thoroughfares, and they're, they're completely separate from the road. We use, you know, high-vis, um, high-visibility uh, crossings where those street side trails cross driveways. So if Chapel Hill had done a similar treatment, there would be a separated street side trail, then a lighted crossing to get to the next segment of the Greenway. And so there's certainly a real benefit to having those additional connections between the Greenways so that people can essentially get where they want to go using that, that off-road network. And where it's not appropriate to have a crossing on the road itself, Millam says the city has put in tunnels or bridges to keep those users completely separated from traffic. I mean, anytime you have an intersection, it's always kind of considered one of those conflict points. Uh, that's those those mixing areas with the bikes, peds, and, and vehicles. And so we're fortunate in planning ahead in that our Parks and Recreation and Cultural Resources Master Plan identified ahead of time where some of those grade-separated crossings should be. And it pays off in safe, comfortable travel for recreation that's generally safe for all users. Despite having a bigger population than Wilmington, Cary has a third of the bike and pedestrian involved deaths. It really shows that some of these deaths can be caused by design. So let's look at another example to show how that can be the case. I'm here at Alicia Drive and Market Street in Wilmington. And this is where a pedestrian named Sean Nicholas Fisher died earlier this year on January 23rd. It was 10 p.m. and he was crossing the street and he was trying to get to a bar to meet up with a friend. And he was struck by a vehicle. Sean actually lived on Alicia Drive. So it makes sense that he tried to cross at that intersection. There are no crosswalks anywhere near that intersection, and the nearest lights along Market are at Eastwood Road and at Green Meadows Drive. And those intersections still don't have crosswalks. The thing that stands out to me when I look at this intersection is, first of all, that there are businesses on both sides of the street that people would perhaps want to walk to. You know, people tend to, if they're right next to a place, they're going to walk across the street to it. That's the case for Cody's North, which is the bar that Sean Nicholas Fisher was walking to, and he died. Market Street at this point in the city is a four-lane road with a median that's not protected whatsoever. There's no, there's nowhere that a pedestrian could safely stop in the center of the road, and that's one of the life-saving measures that a lot of people suggest. There's also no crosswalks here, even though this is a road letting out onto another road. There's a wide enough median that there could be sidewalks on either side of the street, but there aren't any. And cars here go, I think the speed limit's 45, but they don't always go that slow. A lot of people speed in this area of town. A safe crosswalk probably would have saved Sean's life. He was hit by a car with a driver who said he didn't see him. He had almost made it across the street when he was struck, sending his body more than 40 feet down the roadway. The police report describing the crash made a point to describe his clothing. 
a dark gray hoodie-style sweatshirt, and blue jeans. And it said he failed to yield right-of-way to vehicular traffic. But state statute says drivers must yield the right-of-way when pedestrians are crossing at an intersection, even within or near unmarked crosswalks like that on Alicia Drive. Maybe he should have worn a high-vis yellow vest to go to his neighborhood bar. Or maybe the design of the street could have made him more visible and safer. Good design saves lives. Things like streetlights, crosswalks, signaled crossings, or even separated pathways across major streets. But safe design costs money, and there's not a lot of it available, especially at the state level. When we come back from this break, we'll get into the financial and political realities that leave a place like Wilmington ill-equipped to address this safety problem. Stay with us. tuning into the newsroom, I'm Kelly Knoyer, and welcome back. Whenever I ask a local source about the lack of funding for bike and pedestrian projects, they blame the North Carolina Department of Transportation. I've heard a lot about the financial difficulties this state has, so I decided to ask News Director Ben Schockman to come in and explain it to me. Thanks for joining me. No problem. So Ben, what is the scope of the NCDOT's financial problems? So even though they have a budget surplus right now, over the last five years, they've been really short of funds. How short? So hundreds of millions of dollars short. Why is it like this? So yeah, people ask this a lot. There are four main reasons. The MAP Act, Hurricane Florence, and some other natural disasters, COVID, and mismanagement. First, the MAP Act. And you could go way down a wormhole, and I realize that's not the topic of this newsroom, so I'll leave it for another time. Here's a pocket version. Normally, when the state builds roads, it uses eminent domain and acquires land. But that's an expensive process. Back in the mid-80s, the state was looking at a lot of places where it thought it would eventually need to build roads, but it didn't either have the need at the time or the cash yet. Enter the 1987 MAP Act, which essentially allowed the NCDOT to freeze land in what were called corridors, the pathways of potential future roads. Landowners were legally barred from developing their land, but, and here's the major problem, they weren't compensated. Ooh. Yeah. So, flash forward almost 20 years, Landowners started suing, and eventually one case, Kirby versus NCDOT, uh, went to the state Supreme Court, which struck down the MAP Act, and that was in 2016. Since then, NCDOT has paid out over $600 million in settlements. Wow, that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. The legal fees alone were over $15 million, and right as these settlements were starting to squeeze the DOT's budget, Hurricane Florence hit. So if you weren't here... Roads washed out or damaged by landslides, repair costs went through the roof, and unlike, you know, a potential future project, these weren't repairs they could put off. And right as NCDOT crashed through its mandatory cash floor and made allegations of financial mismanagement and new budgetary restrictions imposed by state law, the map back cases kept coming, and then COVID. Ooh, our favorite fly in the ointment. Yes. So, as you might know, NCDOT gets its funding essentially from people driving. So vehicle registrations, yeah, but a lot of it, it comes from gas tax and highway use tax. So when COVID hit, hundreds of thousands of people cut way back on their driving, which cut way back on the DOT's revenue. So MAP Act, Florence, COVID, and mismanagement. In late spring of 2020, the state auditor dropped a report saying the DOT had essentially wasted $742 million. 
Wow, that sucks. <laughs> um, and it seems like they also just don't prioritize their spending on bike and pedestrian projects, uh, since we'll just get back to the bike part of this. 6.2% of their overall budget last year was allocated towards what's called other modes, which includes rail, public transit, aviation, ferries, and bikes. And out of a nearly $5 billion budget, just $800,000 went to bike infrastructure. Yeah, that is not a lot. And it's my turn to ask, why is it like that? Well, the legislature actually passed a law in 2013 that stops NCDOT from giving any money to bike and pedestrian only infrastructure. So they're not allowed to give any money to infrastructure that only serves cyclists and pedestrians. The only exception to this is when the subdivision of NCDOT gives funding to a municipality and then that municipality administers those funds to make those kinds of projects. So it's possible for there to be a workaround. That's probably where that $800,000 came from, but it's very limited. That's wild. Well, what about improving the infrastructure by roads? So that is a tactic that a lot of local jurisdictions will do. It's what's called a complete street. So people will make sure that there's sidewalk and bike infrastructure next to a major road. And there is a specific NCDOT program that's aimed at improving safety specifically. Okay, what's that? The North Carolina Highway Safety Improvement Program. So basically, NCDOT figures out which locations are, quote, potentially hazardous, and then it figures out ways to change them for the better. So this is usually intersections. And those projects are 90% federally funded, with just 10% coming from the state, which helps with the whole money problem. Do we have any projects like that here in Wilmington? Yeah. So the Third Street improvements on Dock are underway right now, and those will help protect pedestrians with a median in the middle of the road. And there have been more than a dozen others across the rest of the region. Right now, there are more scheduled for Oleander, Military Cutoff Road, and College Road. There aren't any active projects scheduled for our most dangerous street, which is Market. But based on their online map, that may change in coming years. So that's NCDOT funding. But what about like local investment? Well, Wilmington is still spending down the money from the 2014 transportation bond, which invested $35 million in roadway improvements and $20 million in bike and pedestrian infrastructure. That includes sidewalks along Dawson, 23rd, Delaney, and Fairlawn. And there's also the planned Greenville Loop Trail and the Masonboro Loop Trail, which will roll over in the next couple of years. Greenville is in the design phase right now. So if I remember correctly, this funding goes through 2023, which sounded like a long time into the future in 2014, but it's actually next year. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and for future local funding, the county is bringing a quarter cent sales tax to voters on the November ballot. Specific projects haven't been laid out yet, but the tax would start raising about $12 million a year for various projects, including funding for wave transit, saving up for rail realignment, and allocating some spending for ongoing bike and pedestrian projects. If I recall correctly from discussions from last spring, they were considering projects for the beach towns and other outlying areas of the county, as well as some interstitial trails and sidewalks that could fill in gaps for cyclists and pedestrians. Well, we know it'll be on the ballot. We'll have to see if it passes. Thank you for coming in, Ben. Happy to do it. Regional authorities face a lot of limitations in what they can do about bad road design. In North Carolina, counties have no jurisdiction over roads, and cities don't own all the land in their own city limits. Here's WMPO's Mike Kozlowski. We're not responsible for the design of the roadway. Uh, and many of these roadways where you're seeing the issues are in CDOT roads. And for many years, they were the division of highways. And so they were mainly focused on highways. They weren't focused on bike paths. 
So the design of the city's most dangerous streets, market, college, and others, that's largely in the hands of designers at the state level. The lack of control and the lack of funding causes some frustration for those on the ground. Carol Stein, a cycling advocate who serves on WMPO's advisory board for bike and pedestrian infrastructure, says certain roads are hostile to cyclists, like Market. As far as pedestrians, on Market Street where these happened, did a crosswalk exist, yes or no? And that really will drive you down to what we need to do better in the community to try to lower the statistics, because they are on the rise. So we need to study the data as soon as it does come in and see what we can do to avoid future crashes and injuries. But then we need to have funding to improve that. Kozlowski told me that the WMPO has made an effort to educate NCDOT about the need for these kinds of changes. Gradually, we've been able to educate them um, about the need for these alternative modes of transportation because, you know, not everybody owns a car. People walk and bike to work. They get on a bus. And so they've got to be able to get to those uh, facilities. So, you know, if, if somebody's going to get on a bus, they've got to be able to walk to the bus. But for Stein, it's a slow process, sometimes too slow of a process. They look at a heat map of crashes involving cyclists and pedestrians, and they decided where roads need to be improved. Some of these that are very high in numbers can't be addressed sooner because sometimes there is available grants or funding that become available in the short term that we can use. Would you like to see this treated as a more dire question than it's being currently treated as? It should be. Uh, we're dealing with human lives. Uh, our friends, our parents, our, our community at, is at risk. But some advocates are a lot angrier than that. After the bike tour in Chapel Hill, a gaggle of residents, students, and advocates held a discussion. The keynote speaker was Tom Flood, a Canadian safety advocate and a former ad sales guy for the car industry. He has now flipped against the auto industry and advocates for cyclists and safety, especially for his son. Because of his background in advertising, Flood is all about the messaging around these problems in modern urban design, and he's angry about it. He put up photos of children standing in front of the grill of a truck to show how these vehicles don't have visibility on the most vulnerable users. He showed how trucks have tons of safety features for their passengers, while children biking to school are protected by the line of paint drawn to designate a bike lane. Who's being affected? Again, by the continual prioritization of the driver in both design and discussion. Um, that's what I think of awareness. It's more of an awakening, taking the blinders off to truly see the imbalance um, for what it is, and this imbalance has been normalized. For Flood, the goal is quite simple. He wants his child to be able to bike to school by himself without being killed. It's something kids used to do a lot more often, and it's still quite common in other countries. The baseline, we have some extremely dangerous spots on our streets for a lot of people outside of the car. He points out that car ads, especially truck ads, are all about power and speed and about the safety of the person in the vehicle. Most truck ads, you may notice, show these vehicles out in the woods or in the tundra, not in the suburbs or the city, where the majority of their owners actually live. And he says most safety campaigns seem to focus on those who aren't in the car, being as careful as possible at the margins. And it's not always focused on aggressive driver behaviors. And I can't believe we have to continually clarify this, is that, you know, over 40,000 people are killed due to serious road uh, injuries on the road every year in America. 
This is Jude Strickland. So he's an 11 year old boy and I get really emotional. So I, I'm going to hold it together here. Here he pulls up a photo of a young boy. Who was killed by a driver a couple of years ago in Hamilton, right where I live. He's walking home from school, right? In a crosswalk with a green light, with a crosswalk, with a crossing guard. And the driver just went through and, and hit and killed him. You know, I show his face, not, you know, not to exploit, but to humanize what happens on our streets, right? Like we can all probably relate or know someone that's been affected by road violence. Flood takes issue with casual PSAs from police departments that make a joke of pedestrian and cyclist safety and don't emphasize the violence of it. We can treat this space with the seriousness and weight it deserves to hopefully make the change that's needed. Um, you know, there's so many ways to make positive change. And this one is, is free, absolutely free. We can all change our language and behavior and discussion around road violence. It's a matter of education, he points out, and it comes down to whether public officials and members of the public want to make a concerted effort to make things safer. So far, 11 cities in North Carolina have taken the Vision Zero pledge to cut down traffic fatalities. Wilmington is not one of them. Now, I want to bring Ben back in here to talk a bit about individual behavior, because although we live in a physical space that is designed in a dangerous way in some places, there are also strategies we can all use to make ourselves safer and our fellow residents a bit safer. Hey, Ben. Hey, Kelly. So I kind of brought you in here as a stand-in driver to counter my narrative as a cyclist and to talk about how to make things safer for all of us. Okay. So uh, I want to start with the Go Coast NC campaign for bike and pedestrian safety. This is the organization that promoted Bike Month with the city of Wilmington last month, and they also have a campaign for safety. Okay, what do they say? Well, for cyclists and pedestrians, the behaviors are quite clear. Make yourself visible with high visibility gear, lights for your bicycle, and by making sure you cross the street in predictable locations, especially at crosswalks when they're available. Okay, well, as you've discussed, what if they're not available? It says to cross near intersections because it's the law for drivers to stop for pedestrians at marked or unmarked crosswalks and near intersections. I've been meaning to ask, are cyclists really supposed to be in the roadway? If they're in like the actual road, am I the jerk as the car driver? Are they the jerk? What's going on here? Well, it's a common misconception that cyclists aren't supposed to be in the road, but we're actually supposed to behave like we're vehicles. Sidewalks are typically for pedestrians. Uh, and cyclists do use them sometimes when the road conditions aren't safe, but there are certain areas in North Carolina where it's illegal for a cyclist to be on the sidewalk. We're completely legally allowed to be in the roadway unless we're explicitly prohibited, so no one should be road raging at bikers on the road unless they're on, you know, the Isabel Holmes Bridge, for example. Well, that would be insane. And illegal. Also, for safety, cyclists should wear a helmet and not wear headphones. We need to be able to hear if someone is driving up behind us. Okay, so I am really going to show my cycling ignorance here, but should we honk? Only if you want to give me a heart attack. I'm kidding, <laughs> but uh, that's why we don't wear headphones. Cars are actually pretty loud if you're just standing next to them, so we can usually hear them coming. That's also why cyclists kind of prefer greenways, because instead of hearing all that traffic noise, you get to hear the birds. Okay, last question here as, a, as your stand-in car driver. But which side of the street should pedestrians and cyclists be on when there's no sidewalk? As a runner, I've always heard you should head against the flow of traffic so you can see what's coming, but is that right? And what about cyclists? Yeah, so if you're on foot, you should go against 
the flow of traffic so that you can see them coming and presumably jump out of the way if somebody's about to run you over. Uh, if they're coming up behind you, you won't be able to see anything coming. So if somebody's lost control of their vehicle, you won't even know until you're hit. If you're a cyclist, on the other hand, you're supposed to behave like a vehicle when there's no other infrastructure available and take a lane. Uh, you're allowed to take the full lane of traffic if that's what's available to you. And of course, we'd all prefer if there was a bike lane for us instead of us being in the full lane, but sometimes that's not the case. Let's get on to driver safety. Uh, in order to support and protect cyclists and pedestrians, I think it's worth having the PSA. It is important to put down your smartphones and not drive distracted. Absolutely. I mean, a whole bunch of the fatalities I read police reports on involved drivers who said they didn't see the pedestrian they killed. Maybe they were messing with the radio or texting or maybe just zoning out. But it's really important to keep a close eye on the road when you're driving, even in places where it doesn't seem like there'd be pedestrians. Those are the most dangerous areas for those of us who are on foot. The guide also says to slow down and follow the speed limit because apparently a third of crashes in North Carolina are caused by speed. Okay, Ben, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Kelly. That's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thank you to my guests, Seth Lajuness, Tab Combs, and Elise Key from UNC Chapel Hill, and their friend Tom Flood. Thank you to Carol Stein and Mike Kozlowski from WMPO, and to Michael Pratz and WECT for their help with data analysis and mapping. Here's your reminder to go to whqr.org to check out those maps. And I'd like to thank the family of Bill Faber for allowing me to tell his story and for sharing their perspectives. Thank you, Rob and Melanie. And before we go, I'd like to mention a few other names. These are the pedestrians who have already died in Wilmington so far in 2022. Tiffany Forsyth, age 40, Sean Fisher, age 43, and Brendan Bowers, age 21. Our editor is Ben Shockman. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or anywhere you get podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Kinoyer. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.